0: All right, I wanna begin with prayer and then we're gonna get right into the message. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for that time of worship where we can be reminded during a very, very busy week and noisy week and impersonal week that there is a God that is with us, that loves us, that sees us. I pray that our hearts would be set at peace right now as we listen to your word. We come open, Father, speak to us, challenge us and let your word lead us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So today I get to wrap up this series called Seek the Peace. That phrase comes right out of Jeremiah chapter 29. It's one of our favorite chapters here at Cornerstone. It, uh, it really uh, informs and, and drives so many things that we do here. And that entire chapter is special, but especially verse 7 where it says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if, if it prospers, you too will prosper. Extraordinary words, especially if you understand them in their context. These are words that are written to Jewish exiles. Jews who had lost their city. They had lost a terrible war. And the, the end of that terrible war was the sacking of the city of Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who was their enemy. Um, you can just look it up. But he, he was evil of the ancient evil leaders, all right? Like he's in his own category. And the, the violence and the torture and the things that he did, it, it was just absolutely devastating. And this nation's had to live through These are the people of God, the promised people of God have to endure something like this. So many are left behind to live in their city that's been destroyed and to bury the dead. But then there are others that are shackled and taken across the desert to live as political slaves in their enemy's capital in Babylon, and um, today we're going to look at one of the stories of some of those exiles that lived there. Now, there was a message that started to be shared uh, the early days while they ha- once they had arrived in Babylon, and the message was coming from some spiritual leaders that were saying, "This, this is so unfair. God would never allow good people to go through difficult things. Your rescue is coming soon." That was the message. Isn't that a great message? Unfortunately, it's not true. And Jeremiah, the great prophet that's left back in Jerusalem, hears that this deceptive message is being sent, which is going to change the way people live. And he says, that's not true. So he writes a letter of rebuke, almost a specific rebuke against those leaders, but with instruction to the exiles living in Jerusalem. He said, it's not gonna end soon. He says, in fact, you need to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And then he goes on to describe, as Gene and Aaron described so well during their messages, this means to love the people around you, your enemies, in an unconditional way. It means to settle down and settle in. And build a house and have a family and get a job and integrate and be connected. And it means to stop thinking that you're stuck in this place and to notice that you've been sent. Those are all very, very important messages that come right out of this chapter. And it's meant to be helpful for people like us to hear this mission. Because exile is a metaphor for the difficulties in life. You know, we use different uh, things to describe our struggles in life. But really, exile describes any time in your life where your life is not where you want it to be. Or not as you would like for it to be. So, you know, there's different degrees of exile. Uh, The Ruchak family is dealing with a very, very difficult one right now. That's exile. It's not as you would like it to be. But along with this mission that comes... In the letter from Jeremiah, to seek the peace and prosperity, to settle in, to, you're, you're sent, you're not, you're not stuck. There's a promise that comes to those that struggle, God's people, and the promise is this, God has a hope in a future. One of those verses that we love so much, that we hold on to in difficult moments. Those words were spoken in the same chapter. Seek the peace and prosperity, but also God has a hope in a future, plans to bless you and not to harm you. All of those things are here. So the exiles hear these shocking words. Um, and the, the the phrase exile has been used over and over again to describe people like us. And so, if you look at First Peter chapter two, Peter describes or the passage here describes us as foreigners and exiles. This letter written to Peter, we are not yet home. We live in this in between place, and it's difficult. Now today, I want to add to what it means to seek the peace and prosperity of a place. And so we've talked about loving your enemies unconditionally. We've talked about building a hope in a future by doing the simple things in life, like having a job and getting a family and getting married. All of those things, that's how God delivers a hope in a future. And then Aaron gave us such specific instructions to see yourself as sent last week. But today I want you to listen to the role the personal conviction plays in blessing a place. Now, this can be counterintuitive because often your personal convictions that have to do with your faith, especially during exile, may not be welcomed. But hopefully you'll see that this is a key part of blessing the place that God has placed you in. God wishes to transform every culture, every city, every county into the image of his kingdom, into his kingdom. That's what he's, he's working to do. And he will use the courage of strength and personal conviction of his people to do that. And so I'm gonna read you a big story today. I call it a big story because most of us will never ever experience anything like this. But the reason we have big stories in the Bible is to lift our gaze and to give us hope and to give us courage that this is what it can be like with God. God can actually do this type of thing in someone's life. And here's what I want you to listen to as you listen to the conviction of these three young men in this story. I want you to listen to the relationship that courage has with conviction. And I want you to notice uh, the relationship that love has with conviction. Love Builds conviction. Conviction fuels courage. All of those things work together. Love, conviction, and courage. And so we're gonna read from Daniel chapter three. This isn't one of the exile books. This is a case study of what it looked like for young men to build the, secret, or the peace and prosperity of the city. I'm gonna start in verse 13. If you'd like, you can read the entire chapter later today. Um, it's, it's an amazing story. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. So Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, well, very good. But if you do not worship it, worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, majesty, that we will not bow Not serve your gods or worship the image of God that you have set up. All right, let's just pause for a moment and just appreciate the courage right there. Like they're before the king and they say, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. And then one of the most extraordinary uh, statements of faith ever recorded, they say, our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow. That's amazing. If it was a movie, it'd give us chills. Chills. Someone should turn this into a great movie. It's powerful. Even if not, our God is able to heal, to rescue, to save, to stop this entire thing. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship you. Continues, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers of his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them in the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the furnace got so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace." Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed. And the fourth one looks like the son of God's. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar, who didn't know a lot, just says something really, really profound right there. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, and governors, and royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. He's trying to do a nice thing. It's just impossible for him. And he goes on to say, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. Wow. The conviction and the courage. So, a little more about this story, what's taking place. So, Nebuchadnezzar had a statue built that was 90 feet high. It's about eight stories tall of gold. And he placed it in a great big opening in, in, near the city or in the city of Babylon. And daily, there would be this signal that all of these designated people, including these three young men in the story, were meant to stop what they were doing and move over to this, this plain or this park. And there they would bow down and they would worship the image, which was meant to be an image of this king. Well, this is happening day after day, and these three Jewish officials don't show up. We don't, know if they, we don't know if they show up and just continue to stand. It seems like they're not showing up in the moment or they're not bowing, nonetheless, they get turned in. They have enemies that are um, against them. They turn them into the king, and, and that's where the story picks up where we began to read. But up to this moment, Everything about these young men and their identity had been tested. So um, what would happen for these exiles is they weren't just taken to live in, in Babylon and just, just be in the city and populate the city. These, these were the talented people in Jerusalem. The, the young, talented leaders, um, officials in the government, people that understood business, They were taken so that they could serve and help build the prosperity of Babylon. But one of the things that would happen is that they would get young men and young women like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they would put them in Babylonian schools. And the point of these schools was to get all the Jewishness out of them, or all the Persian out of them, or all the Egyptian out of them. And so if you remember what it means to be Jewish, not just only at this time, but today, it means that you worship the one true God. The covenant God who has made a promise to Israel, an everlasting covenant to be their God. And he's going to bless the world through those people. That's what it means to be Jewish at this moment. And so they're being confronted with this, their very identity, because part of this school in Babylon is that they're learning about new gods, not just new languages. They're learning about new values, not just new customs. And what they're trying very, very hard to do is to get the Jewishness out of these young men and to make them good Babylonians. So I can imagine the, the conversations that take place at home. By the way, Daniel's their roommate. can read about that earlier in the book. The great figure uh, that, that wrote this story. They come home and say, man, we are being tested. Are we doing the right thing? When do we speak up? When should we stay quiet? Like, why are we here? God has sent us here, but it seems like nobody is listening. How are we to seek the peace and prosperity when everything around us is trying to change who we are? Now, here's the ultimate example that shows up in Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel, about how they're trying to be changed. So we just read the second half of Daniel chapter three, and you notice the repeated phrase, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over and over again, okay? It's actually said 12 times in that chapter, 12 times. Those are their Babylonian names. In chapter two, we see their Jewish names, their Hebrew names, Then Daniel returned to his house to see his roommates and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their name. The system is working so hard to change them, to give them a new identity. Now, this is helpful for us. You know, uh, we live in a world... And we're not the first people and we won't be the last that live in a world that the world is trying very, very hard to tell us that we are something or someone other than what God says. And we need reminders like we have right now and we need reminders in our homes at the dinner table and we need reminders of your friends and you need reminders in your small groups that you are a created image bearer of God. You are a son and a daughter and you belong to a family. You're full of purpose and promise. We need reminded of those things all the time. That every part of the way that you have been made is by design, God has chosen it. These are beautiful, beautiful things that people need reminded of. The world tries to tell us that we're simply just consumers, we're just part of some system, that, that the meaningful things in life are all up for grabs, that there is nothing of meaning. It's almost like they're wanting to call, the world's wanting to call us by a different name than the name that God calls us. Beloved son, daughter, So all of this is happening. I wonder if Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had had gotten tired. I wonder if they thought this is, we we can no longer just sit around and watch what's taking place with our people. It seems like we're being called to integrate. I wonder if they looked around and saw a bunch of people conforming, losing their identity, losing the beauty of the Jewish scriptures, the beauty of their convictions. We don't know what motivated them. But I wanna tell you a story that comes from the Jewish Midrash on this story. So if you're not familiar with the Jewish Midrash, the Jewish Midrash is a very special book that's a collection of rabbinic teachings on passage, passages from the Hebrew Bible that have been added to for thousands of years. And so you get into the Midrash, you might find many different teachings on this story. One of those Midrashes that's been used and celebrated and built upon over the years tells a story that they believe to be true, and that is that in this moment, so the, the, the decree has gone out, everyone has to come together, these young men have to be there, they have to bow down and worship. Um, the days are going by. The story says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went and consulted the Jewish prophet Ezekiel. And if you're familiar with, with Ezekiel, he's a contemporary of Jeremiah and these men and Daniel, but different than Jeremiah, he's a prophet living in the midst of, of the exile. He's there in Babylon with the exiles. He's one of them. So they go to Ezekiel's house. And the Midrash says. That they ask Ezekiel. What should we do? And Ezekiel says. You know if you bow down just before this statue. Because it's of a person. You, you may have a loophole here. That you're not bowing down. And worshiping another God. You wouldn't be guilty of idolatry. Which is one of the worst things a Jew could ever be uh, um, condemned of. Choosing another God before them. And so Ezekiel's trying to offer them godly wisdom like, hey, you, you could probably just go with this and it'd be okay. And the young men say, no, I, we can't do this anymore. And the Midrash then says that Ezekiel says, well, just don't show up. Disobey the order and don't show up. Now, let me tell you why I love this story. I love this story because living out of your convictions doesn't always look the same way. It requires tremendous wisdom, especially the more complicated certain situations get. But whatever happens, these young men say to Ezekiel, who, by the way, also says to them, if you do not bow, there is no guarantee that God's going to save you. Maybe that's what's behind their statement to Nebuchadnezzar. But even if not, we will not bow. And so these men seek wisdom. For whatever reason, they they believe that this is what needs to happen. And for these young men, their conviction and their courage was personal. It was founded in love. So you don't go and do something like this unless love is the ultimate motivation. Love was motivating the conviction. Conviction was producing the courage. Now let me say a few things about conviction, what it is and and how it is handled in our world today. Here's my favorite definition of conviction. Conviction is an attitude or belief or attitudes or beliefs that are treated more like personal possessions or aspects of oneself. So it's not just a value. It's not just a truth. It's literally something that you have adopted. Without this thing, I am not me. When you betray your convictions, you feel like you betray yourself in some way. Convictions define who we are, and they help chart our direction in life. They're not old-fashioned, although they are very old. This is how God meant for us to live, with deep convictions founded in truth. C.S. Lewis, in the first chapter of his book, The Abolition of Men, he describes the need for convictions this way. He says, we need to raise up men with chests, in other words, spines, and conviction, We make men without chests and expect them to show up with virtue and enterprise. No wonder they don't, as he goes on to say. We need men and women of conviction that are able to discern truth, to engage confidently in the world, and to do the right thing. Now, not all convictions are good convictions. So Hitler's an obvious example with his convictions. That maniac was a true believer in his beliefs. And he carried them out. You know, one definition of integrity is that the outside matches the inside. He was integritus in an awful way, an evil way. His convictions on the outside were expressed in his actions. But there are also really beautiful convictions of just people in this room. I know many of you have been touched um, just by the ministry of Jesus in your life. The gospel is good news, you know it. It's changed your life. You know the gospel is not just good news for you, but the gospel is good news for others. Because Jesus died and rose again, not only is he your savior, but you have this conviction that Jesus is in charge and so you follow him. He is the king. You have bowed your heart to him. And then out of that come other convictions. You believe the Bible is God's inspired word. And so although it says things that often are not popular in our culture, you do your best to submit to it. Not even understanding everything that's in there. You do your very, very best to try to understand so that you can submit to God's Scripture. That's a conviction. And out of that, out of the scriptures comes other convictions like we're meant to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're meant to love people who are different than us regardless of who they are, what they look like, their age. These are convictions by which people live. Like if you were to give them away, you would lose yourself. Many of you have a conviction or certain convictions regarding sin. You know that uh, sin is enticing. We're all influenced by it. It looks great, but it destroys lives, it harms people. There are many good convictions that, if we were to let go of them, we would lose our way and we would lose ourselves. And so, your convictions are these deep personal possessions. And for these young men, the conviction is that they're only meant to worship one true God. And they are tired of bowing down to all of the systems around them. And so they literally make their stand. Let me say a few more things about convictions. First of all, convictions will always create pressure in your life. And let me share a few reasons for this. And um, this is not necessarily a commentary on our culture. I just want to describe what, what it's like right now. This is the world we live in, so it doesn't really help to condemn it but it helps to understand it. So we live in a world today that is now plural, and pluralism is the word that is used to describe a culture that is made up of different visions and different convictions. Isn't it true that people have different convictions? We see things very, very differently. We see important things very, very differently. I mean, this is an ongoing conversation here at Cornerstone. We share what we believe to be convictions from the Scripture, and people come back often saying, this is not what the world likes. And it becomes this struggle. Are we allowed? Are they allowed to hold convictions? Are we allowed as a church to have different convictions from one another, but still to move towards Jesus? So the world is plural. Churches, by the way, are plural when it comes to convictions. I wish it wasn't the case. My job would be way easier. But that's okay. There are different visions. There's different convictions that people have. In addition for, to living in a, a plural world, we live in a post-Christian America. For many years, the, the dominant worldview was the Judeo-Christian worldview was the one thing that just most people agreed on, not everyone, but most people agreed on, and it brought some peace and unity. Those days have passed. And if you haven't noticed, in some circles, it's very popular to be anti-Christian in certain ways. Again, not a commentary on what's taking place in the world, and just trying to describe it. So, in addition to pluralism in post-Christian, we also live during a, in a postmodern time. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember the modern age began to change in the fifties and sixties. But postmodernism can be described this way: it's an attitude and skepticism, a suspicion towards all authority, which includes the rejection and suspicion of grand narratives, objective notions, and absolute truth a way to describe postmodernism. And you know, there's some good things about postmodernism. Some things needed to be torn down, some things needed to be questioned. The danger of postmodernism is you tear everything down, you deconstruct everything, and nothing meaningful gets built up in its place. That's what's dangerous about postmodernism. That's what's happening in the world right now. So think about it. If there's um, a rejection of some of these grand narratives, like the first grand narrative, which is God is the creator and made you and loves you. Think of the chaos that can create inside of a a person. So, if you're a person that lives out of some godly convictions and you're trying your best to stay attached to Jesus and faithful to the scriptures, guess what's going to happen? You're going to feel pressure. It's not always going to be pretty. In fact, it's going to be very, very difficult. And There may even be people who are your enemies that stand against you. We see this here in this story, chapter 3, verse 8. At that time, some of the astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. In addition to just people being in this world that stand against maybe some of the things you stand against, there is an ultimate enemy. His name is Satan. Satan the devil is very, very real. He wishes to undo everything that God is doing. He wishes to harm you in every way. I'll tell you what I tell my sons so they understand. He hates your guts. He does. And he's dangerous. He's dangerous. And he wants to harm you. And he's going to stand against your godly convictions. And he's going to do everything he can to put doubt in your mind. You know, there's something that happens when the pressure comes. We all do this, even the most faithful people. I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abed- Abednego did it together and they had their own thoughts to themselves. When the pressure comes, you begin to question your convictions Do I really need this? Is it really true? Do I really believe it? Could I really live with myself if I betray this part of me? We all do it. It's this negotiation that takes place. And there's all these other factors contributing to that negotiation like, no, you don't really need it. It's not that important to you. Of course you can be the kind of person that doesn't stand for anything. The pressure will come. But here's the good news of why it's worth being in the pressure. Godly convictions lived out in his people create peace and prosperity. It does. Louis Giglio has this quote. You can see it behind me. Faithfulness is exponentially compounded by the God who is faithful. Faithful. Like, it's one of God's tools. He uses your faithfulness. I believe the fruit of today is inextricably linked to the resolve to show up in faith in the best and hardest of seasons. Okay, so how did the world get more peaceful here? Well, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then a whole other episode that takes place with Daniel, another great big story that you can keep reading in this book, It's not a furnace this time, it's a den of lions. But the world becomes more peaceful. Nebuchadnezzar says, You can't speak and we can't discriminate against this group, this faith. Later on, he says, If anyone harms these people, the Jews were being singled out at the time. The world becomes more peaceful because of the conviction of not just these three young men, but with Daniel. Think of the people who were protected. We don't know if there were other Jews who refused to bow. We don't know that. How many were thrown into the furnace and lost their lives? So this whole thing ends because someone had conviction. They make the world a more peaceful place. Uh, But I I can tell you that what the Jews did during exile blesses all of us still today. I just want to mention a few things. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are part of this, but the greater uh, Jewish community during exile contributes to all of this. So it was during exile, those 70 years, that the first version of the Bible that we enjoy reading that guides our life was put together. There were just books floating around. We have the the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, the books of the, the, the Torah and the books of Moses. Those things are brought together in one place. There were other books floating around like the Psalms and the Proverbs and books like Joshua and Esther, some of these books. Those books began to be put together into one collection of divine reading, God's inspiration shared with people. And because they no longer had the temple to gather in and to worship, that one sacred place, guess what they began to do? They began to gather on the Sabbath in rooms like this. They called them synagogues or congregations. And they would read the scriptures together. They would pray for one another and they would worship. Like what we experience today as church started in this moment. The innovation, the creativity The reforms that took place in Babylon, you can read about, reflected the justice of God and the equity of God and the advocation for for the dignity of life in all people. There were some Jews who didn't lose their convictions. And God used those few faithful to bless this place. It was during this time that uh, the Jewish faith began to experience a number of people converting to their faith. They just said, your God must be real because we see the way that you're living. Incredible accomplishment of this whole season is just really the survival of the faith. It's amazing. Not only did they survive, but God had done something to correct some of the ways that they were neglecting true faith in God during this time. It's an amazing time that was incredibly difficult. God uses your godly conviction used in wise ways. Sometimes it takes a long time. All right, I want to tell you again about John Woolman. How many of you remember that name? Oh, good thing I keep telling you. Tell you about two or three times a year about John Woolman. Everyone needs to know about John Woolman. It's one of the best Christians, greatest Christians that's ever lived. There's a lot of bad ones. There's a lot of good ones. And you need some heroes. We all do. So John Woolman was an 18th century Quaker, and um, this uh, Quakerism at the time was kind of centralized in the, uh, or focused in the the central colonies, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. That's where the Quakers lived. They established their own communities. They had their own version of Christianity. But like most of the Christians living in the colonies at that time, Quakers had slaves, mostly African slaves. And John Woolman, when he was 21, took a job as a clerk. And uh, really what that was is he was uh, was like a government official that would record transactions that would take place of property. Well, one day, and this wasn't the first one that he had to record, but he was struck. The Holy Spirit convicted him. He recorded the transaction of one human being sold to another human. So one slave being sold from one slaveholder to another slaveholder. And God began to speak to him. And, you know, I don't love using the word that he haunted him, but sometimes the Holy Spirit, it's like that. He disturbs you with what you experience and see. It's conviction, it's godly sorrow, all of those things. And he was gripped with all of this. And this was something God was doing in his life because God was trying to change his heart and change the direction of his life. Well, at 23, John made a commitment that he was gonna give the rest of his life to ending slavery within the Quaker denomination, so, he, you know, it's a big dream, but it's not like he's going to change the whole world. He's like, I'm gonna use the, the power and the influence that I have, and I'm gonna try to build some more, and I'm gonna do my best with my people. And so John would show up year after year at the Quaker yearly meeting that was in Philadelphia. And um, the first time that he, sh- he showed up, he was a man that stood alone. He stood up and he said, hey, we, this is wrong. The image of God is just as real in those people as it is in us this is an injustice. He read scripture. He advocated for the, the release of all the slaves. There were some people that said, that sounds like a good idea, but it would be devastating economically, came up with a bunch of reasons not to live out their convictions. He was one of the only ones that stood that day and said that. Well, guess what happened? He showed up year after year after year, not just at the Pennsylvania, which was the largest uh, Quaker meeting, but he'd show up at all these other um, colony meetings and advocate over and over again. He didn't just use the public forum. He would spend time one-on-one with slaveholders in their homes, advocating for the release of the slaves that were literally serving them during the meeting. Uh, One one story, and you can read about this in the Journal of John Woolman, which, by the way, Emerson said is the most impactful piece of literature he ever read. Uh, The Journal of John Woolman is super boring. (laughs) But if you can get through the 18th century gobbledygook it's inspiring so just take my word for it I'm gonna tell you a great story from the journal so one night he's having dinner and he's in a home with a friend and he's advocating for the the release of his slaves and um some of this man's slaves serve him dinner and he asked he's like who made the dinner he said some of my servants That night, John went to bed and couldn't fall asleep. He was so disturbed that he was a part of this. And so he woke up and he snuck out of the house and he went to the slave quarters that was, you know, another part of the property. He apologized to every slave there and he paid those that had served him that night and said, I'm so sorry. Then he kindly penned a letter that he left with his friend, left it at the kitchen table and left that morning just saying, I can't be, I can't be a part of this. And this is not who we are as people who love God, been freed by the gospel One of our great stories is the Exodus, how God had freed the Jewish people. He put all of this in the letter. And guess what happened? That man was converted to John's way. And he freed his slaves. Now, this was happening one family, one home at a time. Until many decades, he shows up at that Pennsylvania uh, yearly meeting for the last time and says, are we going to do it this day? And that day, the Quakers did something historic. They voted together to end slavery in their midst, and then they did something even more astounding. They paid back every one of their living slaves for all their time lost. Amazing. John had lots of convictions. This was one of them. What would have happened if he would have gotten tired of being the only one speaking up for others? What would, have got, what, would have, what would have happened if he just said, this is, this is a waste of my time. I'm tired of being the one that everyone talks about behind the scenes. I'm tired of standing alone. What would have happened? Well, what we see here is another example of how God uses godly conviction when it's done in a wise way to build peace and prosperity. I could tell you so many other stories of this. It's happening right now for those that are advocating for the unborn. It's the same. They might be shouted down. They might be shamed. You might feel like you're standing alone. It's the same stuff all over again. It's a godly conviction that God will use to bless the world. So the challenge then is, how do we get past those moments when the pressure comes and we begin to negotiate with ourselves, is it really worth it? Now listen, I can't tell you that every one of these things is a hill to die on? I mean, after all, if Ezekiel, the wise prophet, was trying to tell his friends a couple different ways to get out of the whole situation, I can't give us any um, specifics, but what I know is that the Holy Spirit loves our city. He loves our institutions. He loves our families. He loves our county. He loves our state. And he wants to use his people with the truth that's been placed inside of them to bring peace and prosperity to that place. So before courage comes conviction, but here's what I want to end with. Before conviction comes love. What makes this story just um, moving is that it's a relational story. Not only do you have friends together, roommates together doing this thing together, but you you see that they just have this love and fidelity and affection for God. We will not bow down and worship any other God. How could we? We love Him. How could we betray Him? We love Him. Even knowing that God may not rescue them. See, their conviction is relational, their courage is motivated by love, their faithfulness is deeply personal. This is about them and the Lord. God had touched their life. They had done the things that we all need to do. They had carved out time in their life, in their day, to experience loving union with God. It's like, it's the, one, it's the one thing that fuels all the godly virtue that God wants in our lives, is loving union. It all starts there. It all starts with your friend, Jesus, walking through life with you, saying, I'll never leave you, forsake you, I love you, I'm with you, I forgive you. It all starts with hearing the voice of the heavenly father saying, you are my beloved. There's always a place for you at my table. It starts with the Holy Spirit that comes like a mother and and, and comforts and cares. It's like a little kid that knows that mom's always watching. That's what the spirit is like. It all starts with loving union. And in this case, as in every case of every person that's ever faced a furnace, it ends with a loving union. But in this moment, it's, it's really special. Verse 25, he said, look, this is Nebuchadnezzar, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth one looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar thought it was an angel. We know today that it was Jesus. The one that knows the way through every grave, every furnace, every desert. Does he enter into every furnace people face? No, he didn't rescue every Jew that faced the furnace at this time. But he meets us in the last furnace, every person. He meets all of us in that last furnace. And he says, you do not have to go through this exile without me. So that's so encouraging. But here's what I want you to hear as well when you live out of your godly convictions, even when the pressure comes, when you get through the negotiation, all of the different things, you experience God and his love in a really unique, special way that I don't think you get other, otherwise. It's just, like the same, it's, it's just like any relationship. When you show up faithful to your family over and over again, guess what happens? You experience intimacy. There is no intimacy without faithfulness. No true intimacy. No building intimacy. There's a prize for them. And the prize was not just that they saved their life. The prize is that they were there with Jesus. See, love builds conviction. Conviction leads to courage. And God uses those things to build peace and prosperity. All want right, gonna give you a few things to think about and then I wanna tell you one last story. Something that's really special happened this week. A few things to consider as you think about being used by God in the world. So in addition to loving your enemies unconditionally, in addition to caring for the poor around you, in, the, in addition to integrating and, and getting a job and having a family, in addition to understanding that you're sent, okay, living out of your conviction, here are things to think about. I think it's important that we spend time considering what are the, our convictions that we do not, we know that we can't depart from. There are certain things that, we're, that are put on us when we're kids. They're traditions or expectations from our parents. Those are not convictions. Now, they may end up as a conviction, but not all of those do. But there are certain things. I believe convictions should come from God. Now, he can use your family. He can use your parents. He can use a pastor. He can use the Bible. He can use friendship. He can use suffering in your life. But convictions come from God. What is that one thing that he wants you to possess? Those many things. That if you were to lose them, the non-negotiables in your life, you would lose yourself. Here's another thing as we try to live faithfully in a world of exile. When you see others stumbling through the complications of exile, trying to live faithfully, even if they don't do a great job, but you see them trying, celebrate them. Because you know what's going to happen? They're going to get torn apart. And if the people that understand that God uses godly convictions aren't encouraging them, celebrating them, then they're just going to give up. The only reason we have this story that we read today is because their friend Daniel wrote about him, told us about him. I shared the story over the, uh, in the past. Uh, one of our boys got called into the principal's office one day, and he had to come home because he got into an altercation with another kid, and we're like, oh, great. So we get there and we find out and, and, and the principal says, yeah, um, this kid was bullying a couple of Levi's friends and Levi stood up for his friends, threw the kid down on the ground. And um, I thought, well, okay, well, Levi's got to go home. He threw the kid on the ground and we'll talk through alternatives to that. But you know what we did? We celebrated Levi. <laughs> so I do love your courage, buddy. Thanks for taking care of your friends. There's other ways to do it, but thanks for taking care of your friends. Celebrate conviction and courage when you see it. Continue to nurture loving union with with God so the tank doesn't get empty, so there's conviction and there's courage coming out of it. And then remember this promise, God will use it. It may seem small, it may take a long time. We need stories like the ones that I shared today and many others and the ones that you're living out in your life, we need those reminders over and over again that God can use us. That God can change things, God can change places, God can change hearts. He can use those things. All right, I wanna tell you a story that just got added today. So um, I'm gonna share this with the family later this week, but I'll share a little bit of it with you now. So as we mentioned, uh, Monday night, we lost our dear friend, Lisa Ruschak. It was late Monday night, early Tuesday morning. I got a text from her husband, Scott, about 1.30, saying that Lisa had passed. I didn't see it till the morning. News to the whole church hadn't gone out for, it would be another day or day and a half. And so um, the family wa- was there in the home and um, they were there to see, to be with, with Lisa as she passed. Well, that same evening, 20 miles away, completely unaware that this thing was happening, that we were losing someone special to our community, A lady named Deborah Bacchus, who lives, like I said, miles away, had no idea what was taking place. Um, She was woken up in the night, and as she often is, God begins to give her prayers to pray for our church. So, if you're not familiar with this, I don't have time to explain it all, but I can just say this. She has the gift of prophecy, and she gently and wisely listens to God and shares it with people as she feels like it needs to be shared. And it's not one of those things like, God told me, so you should go do this. encouraging, loving words. So our friend Lisa is passing between 12.30 and 1.30. And here's a note that Deborah gave me. She gives me one of these just about every Sunday. So, hey, be careful. God's reading our mail, and it's being delivered to me every Sunday morning, all right? Okay. <laughs> uh, she, she gave it to me this morning, and she said, this is, I don't know who this is for, but this is for those that are grieving, And then I looked up at the top, and she always puts the day and the time. So Tuesday morning, 1230 a.m. And I knew exactly what was happening at that time. And these are the words she heard from the Lord. To the grieving, my comfort is there for them if they accept it. Blessed are those who mourn in Zion, for they will be comforted. And then she was given a picture of what Lisa was seeing. She said, I saw a beautiful mountain where the dead in Christ go. The place is green, covered in light and love. then she continued on and she shared some of the words of of Ezekiel. I exchanged beauty for ashes. There is always hope and you will be joined together with your loved one again. They enter into joy. Death is hard for you to accept. But it will be swallowed up in victory on that day. But it is also being swallowed up in victory in our lives right now for those who die in me. Now you I mean, you could say that's a coincidence. But for those of us that that know the Lord, this is just like him. He's amazing. And there's always this reminder, like whatever the furnace is, whether you put yourself there because your convictions put you there or sickness puts you there, you can be assured of something. He sees it, and he's there, and he's with you. And so I want you to remember that. When the time comes for you to be yourself and all of who you are in that place to seek the peace and prosperity that God never stops. He never sleeps. He's always there, and he's with you. All right, let's pray together and worship team. You guys can come out. Father, we're moved by your faithfulness. We thank you for your love that is with each of us. We thank you that you're the God that's acquainted with sorrow, familiar with grief. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the one that was most misunderstood. We thank you that you understand what it's like to, to be hurt or to be put under pressure when what you're trying to do is the right thing. We thank you that you identify with all of those things. So that's why you can be with us, and that's why it helps. And so, Father, first of all, I pray a blessing on our church. I pray that in the midst of every exile that every person in this church experiences, that they would see one that looks like the son of the gods, you, Jesus, standing there with them. And may we be assured, Father, that you will take us through that very last furnace that we will face. We thank you that that's what our friend Lisa experienced Monday night. You with her. So I bless our church with that, Father, a knowing of your presence, that we might see you, we might rely on you, that loving union would not be interrupted, that it would birth conviction and it'd lead to courage. I also bless Cornerstone Church with conviction, clarity of conviction and courage to be who they are. May you use that. Thank you that, Father, you use your truth lived out in your people to shape the world, to love the world, to lead to peace and prosperity. May we not forget forget that. May we not forget that you use it. And then lastly, Lord, as we end this series, I want to pray a blessing on our cities and our county. And so, Lord, we bless Boulder. We bless the communities in Boulder County. We bless the Denver area. We bless our state. We bless our school district. We bless our teachers. We bless our students. We bless the University of Colorado. We bless the staff there and the students there. We bless the businesses in this community and those working in it. We bless every neighborhood and those that live in it. We bless those that serve us, our doctors, our nurses, our police officers, firemen and women who provide protection and care for us. We bless our institutions. We bless those places where decisions are being made that affect all of our lives. We bless them in Jesus' name. And may we know that you have called us to be present in those places, integrated but distinct to bring your peace and prosperity. And so use us and our presence, a peaceful, wise, gentle, courageous presence to bless this place. And Father, in all of those places in our community where there is evil and injustice, we ask God that that you would give us the strength of conviction that we would not look away, but that we might lean in. And we might be you in that moment, that we might bring you into that place so that it might be changed. Father, may this church never forget that we exist for this city. And we bless it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. Let's stand together and worship. Thank you.